So Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1 to 10. If you've got your Bible there, it'd be great for you to open up and, uh, and actually read along with us. Um, there's quite a bit in there today that uh, I'll be taking verse by verse and just trying to help us understand um, some of what it says. As, as you do that, uh, I want to open up with a story today. And, uh, and this story happens to be when I was a little child. We had a house up at um, Mount Lofty. And, uh, and that house was sort of a split-level house, so the garage was down underneath. Um, but the house was built up so that, obviously, it had to be level, and there was room underneath the house for us to store stuff. But it was also cool to play army under there. Uh, it was also a cool place for cats to get stuck. And uh, this one night, I was, um, I was going to sleep, and I knew Mum had the TV on. Um, and so I woke like an hour or two hours later, I just heard this whining noise, you know, like the whine of a cat. It's like, like this. It just lasted for ages and ages. And uh, so I was half asleep, half awake, and I just remember feeling tormented by this cat. It was just frustrating. I didn't know it was a cat at the time. I thought it was some baby crying on a show that mum was, uh, was watching out in the kitchen. And uh, anyway, so I stumbled out to the kitchen. I look around. There's a light on, but... Nobody home. There's, there's no one there. The TV's turned off. I had no idea what the heck this thing was uh, until the next morning when mum, mum uh, said, did you hear that noise last night? I was, yes. I was tormented by it <laughs> for the majority of the night. Uh, and, and it has something to do today with, uh, with what I'm talking about. I want you to think about conscience today. Conscience. Maybe one of the last times I heard the word conscience used is uh, in Parliament where they've been uh, turning to the conscience vote uh, to legislate um, particular laws. And, uh, and so conscience in this circumstance seems to mean there's no, uh, we can't be satisfied that there's a law in place for this particular area. So we're just going to give people the conscience. So they get to choose what's right and wrong, basically. And they get to work out uh, their own morality on this particular issue. Uh, I don't know when you heard, last heard the word conscience. Maybe you think about it a whole bunch. Maybe you, uh, you try not to think about it because it means disastrous things for you. Uh, today I think that largely we want to and are given a myriad of ways to avoid conscience as a reason to create, create our own meaning and morality. However, not unlike Wes's sermon last week, if you listen to Wes's sermon last week, it just ties so beautifully in with everything that's been happening with he- Hebrews. Uh, because he talked all about the law and, and uh, how the law, when we live in harmony with it, is really good. And it's a really helpful boundary, an important boundary, that we actually get to have freedom within, right? And so, uh, and so like Wes said last week, it's impossible to just squash it away and forget it. Uh, the guy, if you remember, had a tattoo across his chest and the tattoo said, F the law. And he's like, you can try that for your whole life, but in the end it's going to bring you under its uh, submission, right? Uh, and so in a similar way, we don't just get to F our conscience, stuff our conscience, squash it away, put it away. It's going to haunt you. It just keeps coming back. It keeps coming back. Some level, everyone experiences the nagging of their conscience and the guilt which is associated with it. This is the way another author put it, and this is where my uh, whole cat story came from. It's like a, it's like a whining cat that just doesn't doesn't cease. It just continues. Sometimes it can just continue playing over and over and over. It's just this unending, tormenting, painful noise in your head that you just can't get rid of. Um, here's, here's the way another author put it, and um, 
I've got it up there. A nagging conscience. It's like being awakened in the middle of the night. How do you quiet it? How do you silence it? For part of the day, the canine and conscience sleeps, for which you are thankful. But sooner or later, it awakens once again as an unwelcome nuisance with its incessant hounding and barking, refusing to be trained, refusing to heal on command. And what does that conscience do? It refuses to let you escape the guilt of wrongdoing. Now it is internal to be sure. No one near to you may be aware of the torment of your unpardoned guilt. But just as sure as if your foot had been caught in the teeth of a steel trap, your conscience will not allow you the experience of freedom. Another author put it this way in explaining the conscience. The conscience is properly man's inner knowledge of himself, especially for his answerability for his motives and actions in view of the fact that he is, a, he is a creature made in the image of God and as that creature stands before and must give an account of himself to his creator. You're getting sort of the picture of how conscience fits in uh, and, and how it actually relates to God. A sinner who has failed to keep the loving standard of God's law has an inner conscience of guilt and of his need of cleansing and restoration. People turn to anything to escape a guilty conscience. I wonder if I ask you the question, when I am guilty, I... Dot, dot, dot. I wonder what you'd answer with. When I'm guilty, I go to work. When I feel guilty, I go to work. Uh, when I feel guilty, I spend time with my children. When I feel guilty, I engage in religious activity, like doing something for the church, vacuuming or coming and setting up in the church or putting flowers out or going and visiting someone, you engage in religious activity to try and appease this guilt. I run to the fridge. See if he chuckles there. Uh, maybe it's alcohol. I run to alcohol or drugs. Maybe I run to psychology or counselling, which gives me nothing more than a band-aid, but doesn't actually fix the inner whining, the inner barking of my conscience. I get angry. And that directly impacts me, the way I function every day. And it impacts those around me because they get on the receiving end of my anger. I self-talk. It's over. It's finished. Just give yourself a break, will you? I self-torment. I just can't forgive myself. That's an interesting one because ultimately what you're saying is that you become God and you're the one who has to forgive your sin. And it's not actually God who's in his rightful place doing the forgiving. Maybe I purchase back a relationship, a relationship. Instead of letting someone know you sinned against them, you purchase them gifts or shower them with words of praise to appease your guilt, but to no avail. You ever had that? Maybe been on the receiving end? I think I've been on the receiving end where people have given me a gift. I'm like, what the heck's this for? <laughs> Thanks anyway, but it seems a little bit weird. And then they're like, oh, I really appreciate your friendship. I'm so thankful. And you know that something's going on, right? <laughs> something's going on behind the scene. Uh, this next quote. Uh, There's nothing that you could do to free yourself from a guilty conscience. Nothing. But this doesn't mean you cannot be free from a guilty conscience. Notice the, notice the word there. You, there's nothing that you could do to free yourself from a guilty conscience. But it doesn't mean you can't be free from a guilty conscience. And when you think about conscience, some people have a really tender conscience. And these are the people who very quickly realize what they've done wrong, whether they've been confronted about it or whether they just know. They're like, 
I did that wrong and they stew over for days and days and days. And, uh, and they, really, they really have a tender conscience. Their, their conscience is pricked very easily. Uh, if it's something that they've done wrong and they know it's wrong, um, or if it's uh, something that somehow they've been continually condemned by, it's like it's a repetitive condemning of themselves because they have such a tender conscience to, uh, to what's right and what's wrong. And uh, if they're a Christian, to what they know God thinks and what they know uh, God says is right and wrong. Others here have a hardened conscience. And maybe you're somewhere in between or maybe you're at the extremes. Others of you have a hardened conscience. The voice of your conscience has been suppressed. It's been quietened. It's been deadened. You're proud and unwilling to hear the truth about yourself. I wonder if there's anyone like that sitting here today. And the truth is there's hope in neither circumstance. This nagging conscience is not a new idea, but it's why the new covenant... So last time I preached, I talked about the new covenant and the old covenant and how the old covenant, uh, God set up these laws that were actually for people's freedom, uh, which is really where Wes brought home last week. And, uh, but how the new covenant took what was external, what was written on tablets that people had to obey, actually got turned internal into people's hearts. And so God no longer uh, had, his, had his laws written on, people's, uh, on a tablet of stone, but he actually wrote it on people's hearts. And so it went from this external to a completely internal deal, which the old covenant couldn't do, and only the new covenant could. And today we're actually going to look at how that happened. Um, and it gets into the real nitty-gritty. Uh, so we're going to uh, read Hebrews 9 and verse 1 to 10. And then I'm just going to go through really quickly uh, what some of it all means. Uh, So if you've got it, Hebrews 9, 1 to 10. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly pace of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Just pause here. I want you to think, if if you're a Christian sitting here today, and if you're not, if you're a Christian sitting here today, uh, when you see this stuff, when you go back into the Old Testament and see how everything ran and how God set up history you actually know that this is actually part of your history, right? This was the leading up to, this is everything that happened in the past that will lead up to your salvation ultimately and Jesus coming. And so when you look at this stuff, I, personally, I, uh, I learned about it in year 11 and 12 at school and I was a bit bored by it. But the more I've gotten into it and the more I've read it uh, in, in the past years, the more I see, you know what, this is really important stuff and it's actually quite interesting. So I'm hoping that... Uh, I'll make it a bit interesting this morning without laboring on it too long. So get, get back. Verse 2. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a section called the most holy place. So you're imagining, you're, you're sort of walking into this tent, all right? And, uh, and there's a first section and then there's a, a veil, a curtain. And behind that curtain is a, uh, a place called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Notice how much gold there is. This is like an incredibly amazing looking place. All right, uh, It's pristine looking. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. Um, as I was reading this, I was thinking about uh, the different times, types of homes that sometimes you walk into. You know, sometimes as a kid growing up, I remember going to uh, people's house that I didn't even know. And, uh, and you walk up to the front door and you're sort of standing there as a family waiting to go in. Then you take the first step and you go, oh, 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 looks like shoes are outside. 
We're going to leave the shoes outside, so take the shoes off. Then you walk in, and that's the carpet area. Here's the tile area. And, uh, oh, no, you can't sit at that area. That's the leather seats. We're just going to come around here and have afternoon tea, particularly with three boys. You just don't want to be giving them the nice spot. And, uh, and so you had all these rules and regulation and order in the home. And, uh, and maybe some of your houses are like that. This isn't a judgment. No, I'm just saying there's d- different places. Then there's other places which are like the front door's open and everyone just piles in. doesn't matter what's on your shoes. <laughs> They're just in there. Everything, everything's in, right? Um, and, and so you see what happens here is it's, it's a very ordered place. It's a bit like that first house I was talking about. It's a very ordered place. Like there's regulation and there's things that need to happen so that you can enter into God's presence. Because it's a big deal. It's a really big deal. Back to it. Verse 5. Above it, that's the Ark of the Covenant, were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So I'm going to agree with him and I'm not going to speak on them too long. Just so you know. These preparations have thus been made. The priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second section, only the high priest goes. And he only once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. So let's hook into verse 1. Even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. So this was God saying, I'm going to be with my people and I'm, I'm going to be encompassed in a tent. My presence is literally going to be, I'm going to be present within my people, the Israelites, and it's going to look like a tent. And God gave this to Moses and Moses had to go and set it up precisely the way that God had said. Remember I talked last time, you come to God on his terms. We don't say, God, right, I'm going to come and meet you right now. That, that wasn't what it was like back that time. You came to God on his terms and, uh, and it was very clear in that way. So there was regulations for worshipping God. It was ordered and structured and this became his earthly place of holiness. And you need to understand that this earthly place was, uh, was a symbol, it was actually representing a heavenly place, right? So there's a holy place and a most holy place in heaven because Jesus comes later on and he enters into the most holy place. Not a tent anymore, but into the heavenly most holy place. Verse 2, uh, there was a tent. So you had the outer court where anyone could go. So lay people, that would be like any of us, we could go and uh, we could be in the outer court. But then you had the holy place. Uh, within the tent where God would choose, sorry, the most holy place where God would choose to dwell. So the first section, so I want you to imagine with me you're walking into the tent. If you can imagine, if you've got a good imagination, walking into the tent, right? And you walk into the tent and uh, there's this holy place. So there's some sort of canvas walls uh, or, or whatever the tents were made of in that time. And, uh, and in one place, there's this lampstand. And on that lampstand, it's a golden lampstand and it has arms coming up. That, uh, that there's three arms on either side that have candles on them. There wasn't any windows in the, uh, in the tabernacle, and so this lamp would actually provide light. Uh, and then there's the bread of the presence. That bread was bread made freshly every Sabbath day, uh, and it would be replaced every week, weekly, by the priests. You couldn't, you, not, not just anyone could be a priest. You had to be part of the priestly uh, sort of descendants. 
um, family descendants. Uh, so that was the bread of the presence. That was the 12 loaves of bread which represented uh, the 12 tribes which made up God's people, right? 12 different uh, sections. Behind the second curtain, so you imagine you've walked in, here's all these uh, ornaments and particular things. Behind the second curtain uh, is the most holy place. And this second cur- this, this curtain was beautifully outlaid, uh, overlaid or whatever the sewing term is uh, with all sorts of, uh, of beautiful stuff on it. Uh, which God had uh, intended to be there. This was called the most holy place. So you've got the holy place, then you enter in to the most holy place. This has uh, the golden altar, altar of incense. Now, for the neatniks out there, and, uh, and I'm sure there's a few, if you were to look back in the Old Testament in Exodus, where uh, God had told the people to set this up, uh, the golden altar of incense... So that's where the beautiful aroma would come up uh, and that would be part of their worship to God. Um, The incense was actually in the holy place, whereas this says that it's in the most holy place. Now, there's a bunch of grammatical stuff there that would suggest that it wasn't actually inside the most holy place, but it was actually within the whole tent. Um, And so if you want to do more work on that, feel free to do so. Uh, But the the point of what this author is getting at is not that we'd get caught up in the uh, nitty-gritty details. There's justification enough um, to show that uh, they were in agreement, but uh, anyway, you can, you can get in, into that another time. So here's the golden altar of incense, um, and all the priests used it daily. The Ark of the Covenant was covered on all sides with gold, this golden box. It was a timber box, and it was overlaid with gold, uh, in which was a golden urn holding the manna. The manna... I don't know if you remember the story. Uh, the manna was where God led his people out of, out of Egypt and into the desert, and they didn't have anything to eat. So what did God do? He just decided to rain some food down, right? Some, uh, some meat and some bread. And the manna was what it was called, um, which was a, a bread-like substance, which they had enough to eat every day. Um, and so here was the manna as a reminder. I'm with you, my people. I love you, and I want you to remember I'm your provider. And I'm going to keep providing for you. It also had Aaron's staff that budded. Aaron was uh, in a particular situation where uh, God was going to show him that he was the uh, priest and from his line would come all the other priests. And one of the demonstrations of that was that uh, the stick he was holding actually just started to bud right in front of his eyes. So amazing, amazing story. And then there was the tablets of the covenant uh, which held all the laws of God. Um, Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So the cherubim of glory were these winged angelic-like beings. And so if you imagine a box, right? I'm going to flog this box. This does not do it justice, right? But you can imagine a box, and on top of the box, that box there were these two angelic-looking beings that were actually looking down onto the mercy seat. And, uh, and that was symbolic uh, that God dwelt... Often in the Bible, uh, God is actually explained as dwelling uh, beneath the cherubim. Um, and so it was, it was a really clear indication, this is where my glory dwells. I'm with my people. My presence is with my people. Then you go into verse uh, 5 and 6. And let's hook in. Priests go regularly into the first section performing ritual duties. Plenty of activity every day of the year. But there were limitations. You had to be of priestly descent. If not, you couldn't even get near the inside of the temple. So if you were just a regular person, you'd never seen inside the temple. You could go to the outer court, but you'd never actually seen inside the temple, right? Pretty limited, huh? 
oh, this is God's presence and you couldn't get near God's presence. You could only come and trust the priest that they were going to do the work for you, right? You couldn't come near God's presence. And there was good reason for that because God's glory and his presence, uh, sometimes people died because they got too close, right? So it was a weighty, important, heavy thing. Uh, as a priest, you had the privilege of serving for one whole week out of six months. If you were a priest, determined by casting lots, you would be allowed to burn incense just outside the most holy place on the altar of incense. You could maintain the lamps and the wicks. Uh, you could stoke the coals on the altar of incense. And every Sabbath, as I said, you'd replace the 12 loaves with 12 new loaves freshly baked. And all the time there's this veil. So that's just the holy place. You haven't even got to God's presence yet. People just couldn't wander up to God and just have a conversation. There was so much order. There was so much uh, regulation with how God wanted it to happen. But it was all actually pointing to something, a, a truth, a reality that was something far greater. So then you got to the second section. And if you remember, how many times can the high priest go in to that section, the most holy place? It was one time a year. Again, regulation. This is limited. You couldn't just walk up to God. Uh, he must take blood to offer for himself and the unintentional sins of the people. So you can see the, the whole conscience thing, right? Often our conscience is pricked by the intentional sins we do. The unintentional is stuff we probably don't actually know about. And it's why we regularly need to be coming to God as a, uh, as a regular thing of God. There's unintentional sin that I don't even know about and I need your mercy. I need your mercy and I need Jesus' blood to cover me. So this was the unintentional sin. Not the intentional, just the unintentional. Seven days prior to this day, the high priest would leave his home to be in the tabernacle. He would rehearse and rehearse and rehearse what he would go and do in the most holy place for that one day a year, the day of atonement. Keeping clean from touching anything unclean that would ceremonially defile him. Someone who had leprosy or a dead body or animal. He would put on a plain white tunic. So he used, the high priest would usually wear this dazzling robe. Quite an amazing looking robe, a beautiful robe. But instead he'd strip that off and he'd come, as a, I'm guessing, as a sign of humility. I have nothing. I'm just wearing a plain white robe going into the glory of God. Uh, he would put on a plain white tunic. He would place his hands on the head of a bull and confess his own sins and the sins of his family. Now this is where it gets a bit brutal and bloody, if I can use that word, right? Uh, this is where blood starts to be shed and it's important. Have to get it. He would then slaughter that bull and then two goats with it, one belonging to the Lord and the second being a scapegoat. And I'll explain that in just a moment. He would enter the most holy place the first time and took the golden censer. Now, the golden censer was off the altar of incense, right? And he would lift the veil and he would walk in there. And this had real significance. It had real meaning because... Uh, at that point, it was a container of coals from the altar of incense and he'd pour them out before the Lord. And then on top of that, some fragrant incense to serve as a thick cloud, which is a screen between him and the glory of God. He still couldn't get close. He had to shield himself because God's glory was so weighty and so, so heavy. And so up would go this incense and this, I'm guessing it's like a steam, it's like a cloud that would shield him from actually coming close to the Ark of the Covenant, which was the glory of God. This is just one day a year. One day a year. Uh, as a screen between him and the mercy seat upon which the glory of God, to look upon the glory of God uh, would directly, would be to have a death wish. 
He would come and get the blood of the bull and enter again and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And that blood would be a symbol of God have mercy on us. We can't pray for our own sin. There must be blood that must be shed so that our sin could be atoned for. So that our sin and that our pardon could be atoned for. Uh, He would come out, place his hands, sorry, come out and get the blood of the goat then and enter again and sprinkle it on the horns of the altar. He would come out a third time, place his hands on the head of the scapegoat and confess all the sins of the nation. Imagine that. The nation was not like just 100 people. This was like thousands upon thousands. In fact, there was millions walking out of Egypt when when they left Egypt. This is a lot of people. The high priest had a pretty weighty job to do, right? Confessing all the sins of the nation. This was only unintentional sins. Then amidst the loud shouts and cheers of excitement, because everyone gathered, the Day of Atonement was a significant religious holiday. Everyone would gather for the Day of Atonement because it was the one day that their sins would be dealt with. The one day where uh, God invited people close to him, even, even a little bit close to him. Uh, then amidst the loud shouts and cheers of excitement from the people, that goat would be led far away into the desert, never to be seen again. The scapegoat. Get our sins far away. We don't want to remember them. We don't want to hear about them. We don't want anything to do with them. Get our sins far away. That was the purpose of the scapegoat. Then the high priest would remove his garment, clean it, and then lead the people back to his home for the greatest celebration in the annual calendar. In fact, some places in the Bible talk about the daughters of Israel heard to be dancing in the vineyard. This was an exciting day, the Day of Atonement, where all the sins of the people were dealt with for that year, for just one time, one time a year. So there was a celebration. There was huge excitement. There was a big party. Then they'd come back to their homes and they'd go to bed that night and the barking dog would ramp up. The barking dog of their conscience. See, because all the things that happened, all the ceremony and regulation and the sacrifices that happened day after day after day couldn't deal with the internal man. That's where the big struggle is. That's where the big struggle was for them. They were the same as us. They had conscience. They knew that they'd done the wrong thing. And this barking dog would be coming back again. You did the wrong thing, remember? And none of these sacrifices could deal with it. The Holy Spirit, verse 8, indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. This is symbolic of the present age where only the outer man could be dealt with while the inner man struggled and squirmed under a defiled conscience. But this would all change. This is why the new covenant is better. If you're sitting here and you love and follow Jesus today, you're sitting here thankful You ought to be thankful about how amazing this new covenant is. This is what Hebrews is trying to tell you. You're in an amazing place. Imagine being one of the guys back here, just a normal person doing everyday life. You'd have to come and bring sacrifices, but you couldn't bring them. The priest would have to do it for you. The priest would be active at work in uh, in the holy place. The the great high priest, sorry, the high priest would go into the most holy place just once a year, You couldn't even come close to God. The new covenant, Jesus comes and makes sacrifice, sheds his blood instead of the blood of a bull or a goat or something else. And uh, that sacrifice, that blood meant that doors were opened and access to God was for everybody. 
Now, if you've grown up historically um, and you're in the older generation, you'd probably understand the, uh, the regulation. I remember it as a kid in my own church, the regulation of church worship. Like you had to sit really still. You had to be absolutely dead silent. There was chairs up the front. And I always remember the, uh, the chairs up the front. There's a big chair in the middle for like the chief elder. And then there was all the other chairs lined up along the front row. I was in a Presbyterian church and all the other elders were meant to sit there. And the cheeky boy man was like, I know what it's like sitting on that big chair. <laughs> so at times I tried to screw it up. But uh, you never were meant to do that, right? It was a big deal. And this sort of regulation of worship was, I think, quite a significant part of, uh, of churches. And um, if you're in the older generation, it was very different. If you're in the younger generation, the church you come to today, what we do out here is far more relaxed uh, than, than what was traditionally done. Um, and most likely got plenty of their um, backing for what happened from the Old Testament and everything that happened. And I'm not saying order is wrong. I think order can be a really important thing and a valuable thing for helping us to understand the, uh, the brevity of coming before God. God isn't just a mamby-pamby God you can wander up to and uh, treat with disdain. No, it's a, there's an awe and a reverence about coming before God. And all this regulation actually helped to do that. I mean, you don't go into the glory of God. You do and you're dead. That was literally it. So imagine you're a parent. You're going to be telling your kids, kids, you do not go in there. Imagine the ADD kids. They're like, yeah, they're trying to go everywhere. I've got to do something. I've got to do something. So they climb under the tent, climb under the veil. And they're like trying to check it out. I can imagine the cheeky kids sometimes doing that. But it was a big deal. You just didn't do it. So in that sense, it was important to help people understand this is God. This is God we're talking about. Jesus comes and he opens up the way. Verse 9, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are made that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper. It can only deal with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Until the time that Jesus would come to reform the means by which we come to God and indeed how God approaches us. So that gives you a bit of an explanation. I hope it wasn't too long-winded. It gives you a bit of a picture, something to imagine in your mind. Um, there is actually, I was looking it up on the internet, there is actually a uh, tabernacle. They've uh, basically rebuilt this um, replica of the tabernacle, which would be pretty interesting to go see. Um, I'm not sure. I tried to look up, is that, is that okay? Like, can you do that? If God only had it by words here, maybe there's a reason for that. But uh, if you look it up on the net, you can check out some replicas and where they've tried to design um, what the, all those things look like. And it's, it's interesting. It gives you a bit of a picture to understand. Um, but now we get to the application. Unfortunately, at times, we tend to take on the same thinking in, relationship, in relation to our approach to God and dealing with our sin and this barking conscience. At times, we still think that our sin is not the only, only barrier between us. If you think about the story where Jesus died, there was a significant thing that happened in the temple. Uh, that was where the curtain that divided between the holy place and the most holy place actually tore. And that was hugely significant because what God was saying is that the way, the way to come to me is open to all people, not just Israelites, not just Jews, but all people. It's a very inclusive religion. God opens up the way and everybody is welcome to come. 
and be part of God's new covenant. But I think we sometimes think that sin's not the only barrier. It's like you still have to deal with your sin, then you have to get through that veil of whatever it is that you've set up there to be able to come to God. It's like I have to get my life right. I've got to, I've got to organize my life better. I've got to deal with that sin before I can come to God. I've got to make sure I'm going to church every week before I can come and, and come back into a relationship with God. I've got, to, uh, I've got to do all these things before I can come back into a relationship with God. And that's exactly what Jesus broke down. Jesus, the death of Jesus tore that veil apart so that you could come unhindered before God. Literally before God. And where he convicts you of sin, you come and you run to him. You don't have to tackle through all these hoops and try to get through the regulations and all the things to try and come to God. No, it's not like that anymore. But I wonder how many times we maybe unknowingly do that. Well, here's three examples that I thought of. Uh, three examples that I thought of um, in specific ways that people have dealt with their conscience. These people are not on their own, as you would know, uh, but know that their experience is not like, unlike our own. Think about Aaron's sin. Moses is up on the uh, Mount Sinai and God's speaking to him and giving him the Ten Commandments. He comes back down and here's Aaron. Aaron was in charge of the people, right? While Moses was gone, Aaron was in charge. And because Moses was gone so long, the people were like, we need something to worship. We're going to have something to worship. So Aaron's like, all right, everyone take off your gold. And literally it says, everyone took off their gold, we threw it in the fire and bam, there was a golden calf. (laughs) Sweet, we got something to worship. And you see what happened is that his, suddenly his conscience was pricked, right? Suddenly he was like, oh, oh dear, no, this isn't good, is it? Yeah, I was a little bit responsible, but it was really all the people. They were wanting it. We only threw the, the, the gold in the fire and it was just there. Like it, it wasn't really my fault, right? And you try to blame shift. So your conscience gets pricked. Your conscience gets, gets alerted about something that you've done in particular that could be wrong. What do you do? Do you go into self-justification mode and, and blame shift? Well, gee, I, I'm all right, but I, it was their problem. I, I think they made me do it, <laughs> right? They made me do it. The second one was the Jesus and the man of great possession, the rich young ruler. So Jesus comes up to this man and, uh, and, and this man says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus is like, well, you should obey all the commandments uh, and, and you, should have, you should be living a good life, right? Being obedient. He's like, yep, I've done that since I was a child. I'm a really good guy. Then Jesus gets right down to the very depth. And this is where his conscience gets pricked because there was a sin that he wasn't aware of but that Jesus made him aware of. He said, Righto, well, if you want to come and follow me, then, uh, then I want you to go and sell everything you have. Because Jesus knew this was a particular idol for him. He knew that this would be the thing that would mean he was in idolatry, worshipping the things that he had, and instead of worshipping God. And so his sin was revealed to him. Suddenly he was convicted about the thing that he did. And you know what he did? Nothing. He walked away sad. So maybe, maybe that's the way that you deal with your conscience. Maybe that's the way you deal with conviction. You get, feel convicted about something and then you just walk away sad. You retreat into yourself. 
spend days and days just sitting. The, uh, the example last week of Wes, and uh, Wes had a friend who uh, had committed adultery and, uh, and messed up his family. He found the website, and uh, that website said that he was depressed. And Wes was like, no, you missed it, mate. You're not sad. You're not depressed because you've got depression. You're sad and depressed because you've done the wrong thing. Your conscience has been pricked. So he walks away sad. Here's the third one. The sin of David. Now, the sin of David was not a sin of ignorance, right? It wasn't a a haphazard sin that he didn't actually know about. It was a very intentional sin. And so in that sense, the, uh, the sacrificial system, which David was a part of, couldn't atone, couldn't make, make atonement for that sin which he'd intentionally done. So he'd gone and he committed adultery with another woman uh, that wasn't his wife. And he tried to deal with that by killing her husband, sending him out into the, into the battlefield and uh, making sure he was on the front line so he'd be killed. Uh, so he was trying to deal with his conscience, right? And Psalm 51, if you've got your Bible... Open up to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 pours out the heart of David when he's in the midst of this barking conscience, this whining cat of his conscience that just keeps going over and over and over, this terrible thing that he'd done wrong. Psalm 51, and it says this. A Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him, after he had gone into Bathsheba, that was the woman he committed adultery with, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I'd never understood cleansing before. Because part of the cleansing of sin is what makes you feel tainted. What makes you feel tainted is your guilt. Right? When you've sinned, what makes you feel tainted and feel dirty from your sin is your guilt. And what David's crying out for here is, please save me from my guilt. Cleanse me. I want it gone. I want, I want it purified. I can't handle my guilt. I can't handle the continual barrage that my guilt uh, plays in my mind. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. It's a constant. It's barking. Over and over and over and over and over and over and over. Doesn't let up. And when it does let up, it quietens off for a bit. It's just in the back of your mind. You just know it's always there. And maybe you're listening to the radio and something happens on the radio and suddenly that alerts you of something you've done terribly wrong in the past. Like, oh, it's there again. Or maybe you talk to someone and, uh, and they've done something similar to you and suddenly that alerts you and you go, oh, I've done the wrong thing. Verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So he turns it not just from being an inner conscience. I looked up, uh, how do you deal with your guilt? I looked, just put it into Google. And WikiHow came up, right? WikiHow's really good, right? You should... No, I'm joking. Uh, Take it with a grain of salt. Think about it. Look at it. Make sure you discern what's right. WikiHow. So WikiHow basically gives you 10 steps to deal with your guilt, right? And uh, all of them were basically look into yourself. Make sure, make sure that you start thinking happy thoughts. Uh, try and forgive yourself. 
it was all just look in, look in, look in. There was some of it which if you'd sinned against somebody else, you should go and uh, ask for their forgiveness and you should try and make things right with them again. Um, maybe you should buy them a gift or maybe you should do this or that. And so all these ways to try and deal with guilt. However, if you've ever tried to do that, it doesn't actually cleanse the conscience, right? It doesn't go internal. Some of those things are important, right? If you've been sinned against, forgiveness is important. If you've sinned against somebody else, seeking forgiveness is important. They're important things, but they cannot cleanse the conscience. They can't cleanse the conscience. And so what David says is, all this sin that I've committed isn't just sin against me. It's not just sin against the people around, but it's against God. And so here's the connection, and I'm hoping you get this. Here's the connection, that your sin is directly related to God. No person anywhere on the entire planet uh, can escape the fact that sin is directly related to God. And you can try and you can try to deal with it with all these external cleansings, attempts at trying to deal with your conscience. You can try all you like, but it will never, ever, ever go internal to dealing with your heart and dealing with your conscience. So it keeps going in Psalm 51, verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I'll give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Because that was his language then, right? That's what he had to do to deal with sin. But none of those things were going to be enough to deal with what he's done. 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart of God you will not despise. So what does he come to? I just have to come to God broken. I'm broken. I have nothing else to say, but I'm broken. I've sinned. It might be the worst sin. Maybe what blocks you, maybe the veil between you coming to God is that, no way, God would never take me. Look at the sin I've done. Or remember the sin I did back when I was 10 years old? I could never be forgiven for that. Remember the sin I committed when I was a teenager? I could never be forgiven for that. And what David says is, come to God, you're broken. A broken and contrite heart. This is where I close. Our sin is always directly related to God. It's him whom we have offended. When you sin, you sin against God and it's him you've offended. Our approach to God is significant. We can think like the old covenant, having to make our own sacrifices and dealing with our own sin. But my question is this morning, how is it with your conscience this morning? Do you actually sense that you've freed from the condemning guilt of your sin? Do you feel that? Do you you sense that? Do you know that you are actually free? Your conscience is cleansed. Or maybe it's like that barking dog and it just will not leave you alone. Have you found full pardon for all of your sins? Conscience is not an enemy to be hated, but a friend to be heeded. Your conscience is a gift. Great gift from God, prodding you to seek asylum in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 
We don't need to make our own sacrifices for our sin. You should stop it. You should cease. You, you, should, you should give up. It's tiring. There's one man who's made the sacrifice for you. There's not one thing you can do to silence the barking dog or the whining cat. No amount of moral works, no number of weekly church attendance will repay it. No amount of being a good person will repay it. No amount of altar calls attended will repay it. I remember speaking to a little, five, uh, little boy in year, five, uh, year six and uh, he was telling me he went to a particular church and uh, at that church they often had altar calls and they'd be inviting people up saying, come up and respond to God. He'd go up over and over and over again. Almost every time he said, giving his life to God, giving his life to God. And I asked him the question, well, how do you feel? Because wouldn't that be good? Like, wouldn't that mean that it's dealt with? That somehow, that somehow it's dealt with? But he said, no, I still feel terrible. I always feel bad about the things I've done wrong. And so somehow the mechanism has failed. The mechanism that was meant to bring life has failed. No amount of beating your conscience will free you from the guilt of your sin. No amount. No amount of anger, and the list could go on. It's Jesus Christ's blood that put the barking dog to death. The only way to silence the barking dog of your conscience is to make peace with the one who you have offended. The only way to make peace with God, who you have offended by your sin, is to come through his son, Jesus Christ. And the blood that he shed, that's the only thing that will bring you, bring you peace. Hebrews 4, I've, I've asked the community group leaders this week to read Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4 speaks very clearly of entering a rest. And this is part of it. Pete, Pete preached on entering, entering God's rest, but this is part of it. Entering the rest of being at peace with God and knowing that the sins I've committed are no longer going to remain in the guilt of my conscience. But there's a cleansing, there's a freedom that comes. I don't know if you've experienced that. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. I hope and pray that you do. That you'd stop, you'd stop running away from God and run to Him instead. If your sin, if you view your sin and the wrongdoing in your conscience once it's pricked, if you only view your conscience without relating to God, you will only find band-aids that will not actually heal the inner. That's all you'll find. You can only deal with sin and conscience and guilt that goes on by coming through Jesus Christ. So I'm going to pray for a moment. And uh, there's really particular ways. I mean, Wes preached last week about the purging of sin. Um, he said that when you purge sin, when sin is dealt with in your life, you're an, actual, you're an active participant in purging that sin. And so it's not like Jesus is just another way, that, another method that you use to try and deal with your sin. It's like, yeah, sometimes I'll do some self-reflection and sometimes I'll do some self-meditation and I'll clear my head. Uh, other times I might eat and this time I might use Jesus. No, that, that, won't, that won't work either. Maybe it's a repetitive sin and you keep asking forgiveness time and time and time again. 
but maybe you're actually forgetting that you become an active participant in purging that sin. Yes, Jesus Christ's blood deals with your sin and you are forgiven, but you become an active participant in purging that sin. So you don't keep on doing the same sin over and over again. And so, so maybe you just need to uh, come out with it and confess some hidden sin that's been dogging you, barking at you for your entire life. The second is maybe you're confused about why you feel guilty. Because part of Satan's tactic is that he would confuse people into actually realizing sin and repenting of it. And so you get confused. You're like, well, I, I feel guilty, but I don't know why I feel guilty. Right? And that's where you need community. It's where you need people in your church to come and preach to you so that your conscience would be pricked. And you go, right, that's, that's it. I need to repent specifically. That's what God does. God never convicts vaguely of sin. God always convicts specifically of sin so that you can repent specifically. And so maybe you need to uh, come and confess your sin uh, to somebody here. Maybe this is the only place you're able to do it. Or maybe this week in community, uh, and with, when you're with people, you actually pull up and go, you know what, this thing's been dogging me for years. I cannot get rid of it. I try to deal with it myself, I just can't. And so I'm going to come and confess it to you. And in doing that, and as people pray for you, man, that's the start of the process of restoration and of redemption. So let me pray for you. Our Lord and God, uh, this new covenant that we are a part of, we sit here today, we gather together in a church today, in a building today as your church, uh, without all the regulation uh, that was in the New Testament. That was important for a time, God. You really, that, that was an important part of, uh, of what you did in our history and leading up to Jesus Christ coming. But Jesus, you came and the blood that you shed went onto the mercy seat of God to bring us mercy and pour out your grace upon us. It opened up the way so that all people, all people could have internal healing of their soul. And so I pray today, God, that where there's a barking conscience that just will, it's relentless, it's overpowering. You can't even work properly. You can't relate to people properly because of this relentless barking dog of conscience. God, that, uh, that they would stop running. We would stop running to everything but you. The veil has been torn in two and we get to come to you, God. Holus bolus. We, we don't have any, we don't have to have any pretension. We don't have to uh, work our way to you, God. We just come to you. And as David prayed with a broken and contrite heart, I need your mercy, God. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would uh, convict specifically so that people would be set free from sin, so that you would redeem uh, parts of people's lives that in history have just been messed up and mashed up. Thank you, Jesus. What a glorious covenant you've made with us. And by your own blood. Amazing. We worship you. Amen.